Shabbat Shalom, good Shabbos. <laughs> I hope you all had an amazing new year. Uh, happy 2023. <clears throat> May Hashem bless us and increase us all. <clears throat> so I will be uh, deviating from the Torah portion today. And instead, I would like to focus this lecture on theology, uh, specifically distinction theology and its place in Messianic Judaism. <clears throat> I think you know, we know that God set apart the Jewish people and made them a holy and a distinct nation <clears throat> from all the other nations and gave them the Torah. I do not think we need to devote much time into this because I assume everybody here would agree with that. <clears throat> so what, what is distinction theology? I will be, give a, a brief description of distinction theology for the sake of time. Distinction theology is a premise that there is a difference between Jewish people and Gentiles even after they become Yeshua followers, yet the Torah obligations apply little different to Gentiles than to the Jews. <clears throat> Our teacher Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that we are all one in Mashiach. And after all, there is even a song about it, right? So it must be true. <laughs> I believe this matter deserves further investigation. So the few questions I am aiming to find answers to, did, to today are, did the disciples of Yeshua uh, make a distinction between Jew and Gentile? Two, if so, what commandments are the Gentiles obligated to? And three, where do the disciples, uh, excuse me, disciples make this distinction? To better understand this, I think we should look at Acts chapter 15. But before we go there, go there to Acts chapter 15, I would like to make some clarifications in order to have a better understanding on how Hashem <clears throat> ordered the Torah to be carried out. We need to first understand what the Jerusalem Council and or a Beit Din is and what their role and the Messianic congregation is. To get a better understanding of this, <clears throat> we should look at the function of the Torah's legal system as it operated in the days of the apostles. We will start first with the highest court uh, in the land, the great Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin Gadol, uh, <clears throat> presided as the highest court or the supreme court in the land. 71 elders, 71 elders are members occupied at seats corresponding to Moses and the 70 elders God placed over uh, Yoretz Israel. Exodus uh, chapter 18 and also Numbers chapter 11 uh, verses 16. <clears throat> the president of the great Sanhedrin was called the Nasi or the prince. The great Sanhedrin also had the authority to bind and loosen commandments for all Israel, and also had the authority to try capital cases, as was given them in Leviticus uh, chapter 17, verses 8 through 12. I didn't know talking in front of so many people makes your throat so dry. <laughs> <laughs> 
<coughs> the small Sanhedrin <coughs> functioned as the function as a lower court. The small Sanhedrin or the petite court were composed of 23 members each. A judge, a judge called the Rosh or the head presided over the small courts. Ideally, uh, the judicial system required in every town in Israel with more than 120 men to have a small Sanhedrin of 23 to settle local cases, yet it is unlikely that all the communities met this requirement. Two small Sanhedrins, though, in, Jerus in Jerusalem served as high courts directly under the great Sanhedrin. <clears throat> one, man, one man at the temple uh, excuse me, at the gates of the temple courtyard, and the other one met at the entrance of the temple mount. <clears throat> a bait dean, which a bait din, which is tra translated to a house of judgment, is the court of law composed of three judges presiding over uh, communities with less than 120 men, but more than nine. <clears throat> A bait dean was responsible for making judgments on legal and communal matters and also had the authority to bind and loose on a communal level in, regardings, in regards to halakha, which is the way one walks out a commandment. <clears throat> it was the lowest court in the land and the basic building blocks of the legal system the judges on the Beit Din conveyed in the synagogues and functioned as congregational leaders and elders over their community. <clears throat> the Beit Din could not issue death penalties. They had to send capital cases to uh, the higher courts. This is how the, le the legal court system functioned in Yoretz Israel and the land of Israel according to the stipulations of the Torah. <clears throat> Our master Yeshua told his disciples, whatever you bind on earth shall be, have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall been loosed in heaven. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. In this context, <clears throat> this does not refer to the authority to bind and loose evil spirits and spiritual warfare, as some think. <clears throat> when the rabbis needed to... Uh, when the rabbis needed to decide an issue of law, <clears throat> they argued rather to bind or to loose a particular act or deed. To bind means to forbid. To loose means to permit. The Torah vested the power to bind, forbid, and to loose, permit in the Sanhedrin, the, the, uh, the priesthood and the judges over Israel. The terms to bind and loose, forbid and permit, appears literally thousands of times in the Mishnah and the Talmud and other rabbinical literatures. The following example from the Talmud illustrates this point. If one sage declared something as bound, he should not ask another sage or might, who might declare it loosed. If two sages are both present and one rules something unclean and the other rules it clean, if one binds and the other loosens, then if one of them is superior to the other in learning and numbers of disciples, then follow his ruling. 
otherwise follow the stricter view. Uh, that's uh, taken from uh, Tractate uh, of Bodhisattva uh, 7a from Talmud Bavli. <clears throat> in, the days of the uh, in the days of the disciples, the Sanhedrin had the ultimate authority to make decisions of binding and loosening. In the Messianic era, Messiah will give the keys to the kingdom and the authority to bind and loose to his 12 disciples who will sit on the 12 thrones judging the tribe of, tribes of Israel, Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 28. In this current era, he gave them the authority to make judicial decisions for the community of his assembly. They exercised that authority as they transmitted the teachings of Yeshua and particularly applied it to the assembly of Messiah. On one occasion, <clears throat> they had used the authority to override the orders of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 17 through, uh, through 20. <clears throat> the context, though, of this, this verse is when uh, Peter or Kepha and Yochanan, John, were ordered by the Sanhedrin to quit speaking and teaching in the name of Yeshua. And another occasion, they loosened the Gentile believers from circumcision and the whole yoke of the Torah as it applies to Jews, but bound them regarding things sacrificed to idols, blood, unslaughtered meats, and sexual immorality. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 19, 19 through 29. The power to bind and loose, however, never extended so far as to nullify the commandments of the Torah or to create new commandments. The authority of the sages and the apostles only went so far as to interpret the applications of the existing text of commandments. For example, Neither the Sanhedrin nor the disciples had, the disciples of Yeshua obviously, had the authority to loose Israel from keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day, nor could they bind them to observe a different day of the week as the Sabbath. That is to say, they did not go beyond the scope of the Torah. <clears throat> now that we have a clear um, definition on the role of the Jerusalem Council, a Beit Din, in Jewish context, we can now appreciate how it relates to the Jerusalem Council and how the transmissions of the master's authority to bind and loose was given to his apostles. The head of the Jerusalem Council was uh, known as, uh, well, Yaakov or James, the, the brother of Yeshua or Jesus, uh, Simon Peter or Kepha, and uh, Yochanan or John, just so we're clear on who I'm talking about here. Paul refers to them as the three pillars in Galatians chapter two, verse nine. Uh, now that we got a better understanding, uh, let us all as a congregation turn to Acts chapter 15, starting on verse one, please, if you would. <clears throat> Uh, once again, uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, okay? Uh, <clears throat> I will be uh, 
quoting Acts chapter 15 uh, verse by verse, but I might pause here and there maybe to give uh, a little more context if we would, if we, if we would. Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> but some men came down from Yehuda to Antioch and began teaching the brothers, you cannot be saved unless you undergo Brit Malah, which is circumcision, just to make it clear, in the manner prescribed by Moshe. Pause. <clears throat> Contrary to popular belief, this verse, being saved, is not talking about going to heaven. It is refer referring to the national salvation of Israel, when Hashem will take his people from the four corners of the earth and bring them back home to their ancestral land, the restoration of the Davidic line and the coming of the messianic era and the resurrection of the right righteous. <clears throat> All the prophets prophesied about this. Continuing on with verse 2, <clears throat> this brought them into a small measure of discord and dispute with Shaul and Barnabah. So the congregation assigned Shaul and Barnabah and some of themselves to go up and put this to the shlicha before the emissaries and the elders up in Yerushalayim. Uh, put this question before the uh, before the Beit Din in Jerusalem, before the Jerusalem Council, to ask them, should we make these uh, Gentiles uh, submit to the whole Torah and undergo circumcision, okay? After, oh, sorry, uh, continuing on with uh, verse three. After being sent off by the congregation, they made their way through Pisidia and Shimron, recounting in detail how the Gentiles had turned to God, and this news brought them great joy to all the brothers. Uh, Paul, uh, pause. Paul actually recounts this journey in uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Just for the sake of time, I will read it real quick and see how it can apply to this. Uh, Galatians 2, uh, uh, verses 1 through 3. Then after 14 years, I again went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took with me Titus, and I went up in obedience to the revelation, and I explained to them the good news as I proclaimed it among the Gentiles. <clears throat> but privately to the acknowledged leaders, I did this out of concern that my current or previous work might, had, might have been in vain, but they did not force my Gentile companion, Titus, to undergo Brit Malah, that is circumcision. Uh, <clears throat> I, for one, he's recounting this in Galatians, and I, but I think it's really important to look at this that he knew and he understood that they had the ultimate authority given to them uh, by Mashiach to bind and loosen. Because if we pay attention to uh, Galatians, it says, but privately to the acknowledged leaders, I did this out of concern that my current work, uh, my current or previous work might have been in vain. So he's saying, I better go up there and put this to the shlicha, give them, you know, this 
do we make these people uh, convert and become Jews and undergo Brit Malah, or can they stay Gentiles? Because he's saying it, it would have been done in vain. Like what he's preaching, his gospel that he's preaching, that all do not have to become Jews, is very controversial in his time. But not only is it controversial, uh, that's kind of how he thought, but he gave the Jerusalem Council the complete authority to make this decision. And they ruled that, no, your uh, uh, Gentile companion does not uh, have to go under, undergo Brit Malah. Okay, sorry, went off on a tailspin, but I thought that was very important to go to uh, Galatians to see that. Okay, back to Acts chapter 15, starting on verse four. On arrival in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the Messianic community, including the emissaries and the elders, and they report what God had done through them. But some of those who had come to trust were from the party of the Paroshim, that is the party of the Pharisees. And they stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the Torah of Moshe. The emissaries and the elders meant to look into this matter. After lengthy debate, Kepha got up and said to them, Brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back, God chose me from among you to be the one by whose uh, mouth the goim should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. And God, who knows the heart, bore them witness by giving them the Ruach HaKodesh by giving the Ruach HaKodesh to them, just as he did to us. That is, he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their heart by trusting. So why are we putting God to the test now <clears throat> by placing a yoke on the neck of the Talmudin, which neither our fathers nor we had the strength to bear? No, it is through the loving kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered, <clears throat> and it is the same with them. Then the whole assembly kept still as they listened to Barnaba and Shaul tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. Yaakov broke the silence, so that's James, the brother of Yeshua, broke the silence to reply, brothers, he said, Here, here's what I have to say. Uh, Shimon Peter has told in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern from taking among the goyim, a people to bear his name. And the, and the words of the prophets are in complete harmony with this, for it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the fallen sukkah of David. I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That is all the goyim who have been called by my name, says Adonai, who is doing these things. All this has been known for ages. Uh, so Yaakov here is uh, quoting uh, the prophet Amos or uh, Amos, uh, specifically chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, uh, which this is kind of a pretty good argument 
that he's making, you know, all the goyim who, who have been called by my name, uh, if uh, they force these people to become Jews, uh, they can't fulfill that verse. If they're all Jews, how are they all going to come from all the nations, you know what I mean? All the goyim, they're specifically saying the nations here. But anyways, uh, therefore, my opinion is that we should not put an obstacle in the way of the goyim who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. From, for from the earliest times, Moshe had in every city those who proclaimed him with the words being read in the synagogue on, synagogue on every Sabbath. Okay, we'll stop there, okay? <clears throat> Judaism already had the seven laws of Noah, or the Noahide laws, in place as a minimal standard of Torah for Gentiles, which the sages derive from cha uh, Genesis chapter 9. For those who don't know, um, the ancient sages of Israel looked at Parashah Noach and pulled out seven universal laws that applied to all Gentiles. We don't have the time to discuss how the sages determine this today, but for reference, it can be found in Talmud Bavli, Tractate Sanhedrin 56a, and also in the Tosefta Avodah Zarah 9.4. These are the laws. Do not worship idols or other gods. Do not blaspheme God's name. Do not murder. Do not commit sexual immorality. Do not steal. Do not eat things while they are still alive, i.e., meat with blood. Establish courts of justice. <clears throat> Why did the apostles feel it necessary to carry, uh, to create uh, the list of the four specific prohibitions for Gentiles. At first glance, it appears that some of the prohibitions are redundant. The apostles could have simply told the God-fearing Gentiles, keep the laws of Noah. The God-fearing Gentile believers were more than just sons of Noah, or simply God-fearers. Through one's allegiance to King Messiah, a Gentile believer entered into a close fellowship with the Jewish people and became an adjunct member of the nation and the language of the Torah and became a stranger who sojourned among them, a ger toshav. In the Torah, certain laws applied to both Jew and to both Jew and the stranger who sojourned in the midst of the people of Israel. All four of the apostolic decrees belong to, the, to that category of laws. The four commandments of the apostolic decree go beyond the universal laws of Noah. Basically saying you're no longer Jimmy Gentiles. You're more than that, you're followers of Yeshua. Okay, <clears throat> the apostles seem to have derived them from Leviticus, chapters 17 and 18 and those chapters the Torah describes the, the Torah describes the sins of the Canaanites warning the people of Israel against 
imitating their ways and prescribing four prohibitions that the Israelites and the strangers who dwell within the nation must keep. These correspond to the four prohibitions of the apostolic decree that we just read, an order in which they occur in the apostolic letter. So we didn't read the apostolic letter because it's redundant. It's just he, they're repeating, you know, what they made the ruling on. Number one, to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Number two, from blood. Number three, from things strangled. And number four, from fornication. Acts chapter 15, verse 29 I will discuss these four prohibitions in context with the Torah. So let's get started. Uh, number one, abstaining from things sacrificed to idols. Uh, we'll be looking at Leviticus for time's sake. I will just uh, give you the chapter and verse. Vaigra uh, or Leviticus chapters seven, chapter 17, verses seven through nine, no longer will they, so I'm quoting the, uh, the text, no longer will they offer sacrifices to goat demons before whom they prostituted themselves. This is a permanent regulation for them through all their generations. Also tell them when someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice without bringing it into the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to Adonai, that person is to be cut off from his people. <clears throat> the prohibition on sacrificing outside of the temple presupposes an idolatrous sacrifice. According to this passage, the stranger who dwelt among the people of Israel are also prohibited from sacrificing outside the temple. By extension, from eating food sacrificed outside the temple, this is not the same as a general ban on idolatry. Judaism includes the prohibition on idolatry in the universal laws of Noah that apply to all humanity. The prohibitions on things sacrificed to idols goes one step further. It requires a heightened distance from things polluted by idolatry based upon the Torah's prohibitions on eating food sacrificed to other gods. Uh, let's go on to prohibition number two, and from blood. Uh, we'll be drawing out of Viagra or Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 11. <clears throat> When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you eats any kind of blood, I will set myself against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. For, for it is the blood that makes an atonement because of the life. <clears throat> The prohibition on uh, blood is not the same as some explain a prohibition on murder. Rather, the apostles considered the law uh, cons uh, considered the law against murder as part of the universal laws of humanity given to Noah. Nevertheless, the prohibition on blood still seems redundant 
since God gave the same prohibitions to Noah in Genesis 9-4. Why would the apostles repeat a prohibition that already applied to Gentiles? Judaism interprets Genesis 9-4 to prohibit eating parts of an animal while it's still alive. Therefore, according to the broad terms of ethical monotheism imposed by the synagogue, Gentiles are permitted to ingest unslaughtered meats or an animal's blood so long as the animal is dead. The apostolic decree against blood uh, clarifies that Gentile disciples fall into a different category as a stranger in the midst of Israel. <clears throat> According to Leviticus uh, 17, uh, 10, 11, uh, that specifically prohibits Gentile believers from consuming blood. Okay, uh, the third prohibition, and from things strangled. Uh, we'll be drawing out of, of Vaigra or Leviticus chapter 17, verses 12 through 13. <clears throat> and this is why I told the people of Israel, none of you is to eat blood, nor is any foreigner living with you to eat blood. When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you hunts and catches game, whether animal or bird, they may they uh, bird that may be eaten, he is to pour out its blood and cover it with earth. <clears throat> the prohibition on things strangles refers to meat of animals not properly slaughtered according to ceremonial Torah standards. <clears throat> it includes all types of carcasses and animals that die of injury other than ritual slaughter or disease. Deuteronomy 14 uh, 21 specifically allows non-Jews to eat carcasses, but the Torah requires a stranger who uh, sojourns within Israel to employ the Torah's methods of, slaughter, of slaughtering, pouring out the blood upon the ground. Since Gentile believers fell into the latter category, the apostles forbade them from the meat of strangled animals. Essentially, this means that Gentile believers should avoid meat that has not been slaughtered and drained properly. Uh, just a, a, a little additional information that might help with the term things strangled. It is actually a rabbinical idiom. It is specifically quoted in Talmud Bavli in uh, Tractate Hulan. It talks about proper shlita, which is uh, the, way, the method to slaughter which is how to kosherly slaughter an animal. It talks about how it, it's prohibited to use a dull knife or a serrated knife that will tear the skin uh, that, the, that, that is, uh, it'll tear, tear the skin of the animal. Uh, that is one must have an extremely sharp knife and cut the animal's blood vessels in its neck. The heart continues to pump out the blood. Uh, if one is careless and accidentally cuts the animal's windpipe, it is an unkosher slaughter, rendering the animal strangled because the animal asphyxiates on its own blood. Number four, and from fornication. Uh, we're taking this out of uh, Vaigra, Leviticus chapter uh, 18, verse 26. 
but you are to keep my laws and my rulings and not engage in any of these disgusting practices, neither the citizen nor the foreigner living with you. <clears throat> the prohibition on fornication in Leviticus 18.26 comes to the end of a long list of forbidden unions. The list prohibits um, incest, intercourse with a woman and menstruation, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and, uh, and uh, by implications, uh, similar sexual deviance. Uh, the, uh, the apostolic prohibition on sexual immorality might seem to be redundant since the seven universal laws of Noah uh, already prohibited fornication. Again, why would the apostles repeat an obvious prohibition that already applied to all Gentiles in the apostolic era. The sages' uh, opinion stated that the rules of sexual conduct for the sons of Noah could be determined by uh, Gentile society in regards to these forbidden relationships. The Gentiles are judged in accordance with their own laws. This opinion left the meaning of sexual immorality vague and undefined for Gentiles. The God-fearing uh, God uh, Gentile disciples of Yeshua, however, fell into a different category as strangers in the midst of the people of Israel. The Torah holds them to the same standards of sexual purity to which it holds the Jewish people. Immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Ephesians 5.3. <clears throat> According to Judaism, the four prohibitions of the apostolic decree did not apply universally to all Gentiles. It only applied to the Gentiles in the midst of Israel. On that basis, the, apostol uh, the ap apostles spelled out the halakhic consequences of their decisions. <clears throat> Uh, to this uh, allow God-fearing believers to remain Gentiles, even if Gentiles are saved as Gentiles, they must be exhorted to uh, abide by those commandments that are already applied to them in scripture and its interpretive traditions. In closing, ladies and gentlemen, I hope what I am saying is not misconstrued. I am certainly not suggesting that Gentiles do a minimal standard of mitzvah, that is, positive commandments of the Torah. But on the contrary, I think we should all strive to increase mitzvah, positive commandments, as much as we can every day to praise Hashem in every part of our lives. I hope I was able to bring more understanding to the distinction the apostles made between Jew and Gentile and why we should honor their rulings. For about 1,700 years, replacement theology has suggested that the Torah uh, is no longer valid because Jesus has come to cancel the Torah. Therefore, one who is Jewish does not need to practice Judaism, making everyone Christian. The flip side to this is one law theology, which states that the Torah is valid and Jesus did not come to cancel the Torah, but uphold it, therefore holding us all responsible therefore holding us all responsible for all of commandments and applying the Torah uh, equally to Jews and Gentiles, the suggestion that we are all Jewish 
and there is no distinction. I find it very ironic that both replacement theology and one law theology tries to assimilate, consume, and dilute the Jewish people. Where distinction theology aims to focus on the unique but important differences between Jews and Gentiles following Yeshua, Shabbat Shalom.